Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast about Scottish history, culture and nature. My name is Jenny and I'm a big tree. And I'm Annie, a small bird nesting within her branches. This is a special episode celebrating the extraordinary life of the Bewley elm tree, which sadly fell last week. In this episode, we're going to meet the wee community of monks who likely planted this tree around 800 years ago, which is incredible. And we'll hear about the history that swirls around it. For hundreds of years, in the wee village of Bewley, which sits about 13 miles west of Inverness, the Bewley elm stood tall and proud. Its deep roots reached down through the burial grounds of the Bewley Priory. Its bark, the colour of charred peat, was rough and deeply fissured. Its huge trunk was knotted and gnarled. Strong, winding branches clawed their way upwards, reaching out into the sky like ancient hands seeking the stars. Its many toothed and tapered leaves rustled gently, summoning wee creatures to come and shelter amongst the branches and the burrs. It stood in the heart of the village of Bewley, a distinct marker of nature's beauty at the centre of this settlement. It was a truly majestic tree, but like all trees, it started as a tiny seed. The parents of this newborn seed are witch elms. The witch in witch elm is not related to witches with supernatural powers, but rather it comes from an old English word for trees with pliant branches. I know I shouldn't be, Annie, but I am a little disappointed by this. I'm all for bendy witchy wood, but you know I love a good bendy witchy witch. So the malleable and flexible wood of this tree isn't great for construction, but it has many other uses. It's resistant to water, making it great for cartwheels and boat building. In Scotland, the natural bend plus pliability of the witch elm wood means that it's one of the favoured woods for camins, which is the stick used to play shinty. The flexible family of our wee witch elm seed are spread across Europe, more so in Northern Europe. They're hardier than their cousins, the English elms, and so are found much further north, which bodes well for the story of our wee seed in the Scottish Highlands. Yes, and because of their hardy nature, these trees can take advantage of ecosystems that other trees shy away from. They usually gather and set their roots in hilly or stony woodlands, and when given the chance, a lovely ditch. We all love a ditch. But nowadays, sadly, witch elms are increasingly scarce. However, just for today, let's step back in time and shrink our tree back into its seed. We're going back around 800 years to experience the moment that our beloved wee witch elm seed is planted in Bewley. 800 years is a really long time to rewind, but... If my standard grade maths is correct, we are now in the medieval period. The 13th century, to be precise. And unsurprisingly, 
the north of Scotland is a very different place in the year 1230. Let's look up and down, because those are my favourite directions. <laughs> Mine are left and right, but up and down will do for now. <laughs> the 1230s are pretty radical years for shaping Scotland as a country. In the far north, we're seeing the Norse rule, established after Viking invasions in the late 8th century, in steady decline. 1231 witnessed the previously unbroken line of Norse Earls of Orkney come to an end, and the title passing over to Scottish nobles. Then, down south, in 1237, the King of Scotland, Alexander II, agreed to the Treaty of York. This settled the border between Scotland and England, and it's more or less the same border that we still have today. So, in a way, the 1230s, from both the North and the South, see Scotland defining her land. There's a feudal system in place, but it's not quite homogenous across Scotland. A feudal system means we essentially have nobles who control land on behalf of a monarch. The normal people who live and work on the land do so in a way that upkeeps the nobles, church and crown through obligations such as labour and rent. These folks also owe the nobles military service if required. It's not really a great deal for the common people, but for the rich, they're loving it. (laughs) In the highlands, where we are about to plant this wee seed, the power of the highland clans are in full swing. And it's in this social climate that a small group of French monks plod their way to the far end of the Murray Firth and decide it's high time to found a priory. It's likely that these priory establishing monks are the ones who gave the settlement its name, Bewley. However, there is local lore that in her summer journey of 1664, Mary Queen of Scots was being driven through the area in a carriage. When she pulled back the curtain and looked out the window, she saw the stunning landscape before her and exclaimed, C'est un beau lieu! Which translates to, What a beautiful place! Beaulieu, Bewley, the beautiful place. As fun as this story is, and as bad as your accent is, <laughs> we know that Bewley was named Bewley long before Mary, Queen of Scots, visited. We've got really good manuscript documentation of this name for a few hundred years before our Mary, Queen of Scots, is born. Aww. So though she may have said, C'est un beau lieu! Upon seeing Bewley, <laughs> she isn't the origin of its name. It makes sense that these French monks also looked around and considered this a place that needed to be named for its beautiful landscapes. And the influence of these monks gives us a wee French name in the midst of the Scottish Highlands. Though, as a side note, the name Bewley may actually just be a direct translation of the Gaelic, meaning Mouth of the Ford as Bewley is situated right at the opening of the gorgeous Firth. So, I don't know, pick a story, any story, the village is now called Bewley. (laughs) (laughs) Of that, we have no doubt. Our monks are part of a Catholic order, 
the Valescolians. They have been on a really long journey to the north of Scotland. Now, these monks just can't start building a grand abbey wherever they fancy. They require funding and land. Because it's so long ago, there's a wee bit of contradiction over which noble supplied the land and seed funding for the Valescolians to set up in the Highlands. It's likely either the landowner, John Bissett, or the very king himself who supported their little venture. And of course, they would be supporting the monks because in supporting the monks, they're going to save their own souls. That's what they're believing. The monks like the look of this location because it's got beautiful, fertile ground and they are attracted to the hermit lifestyle. There's not a big settlement around them. Because that's interesting because some monks, like the ones we covered quite recently in the Greyfriars Graveyard episode, they're actually dedicated to the salvation of the souls of the local community. So they actively set up around a lot of people. But these monks, they don't seem to be that type, do they? No, you're right. They are quite unusual monks from this perspective. Instead of trying to save the world via the word of God, they are trying to save themselves. (laughs) They're really (laughs) looking out for the number one soul and no one else's soul. (laughs) They follow the monastic life for the salvation of themselves, for their own souls, living in really small cells. And they are very limited by how they can sustain themselves. And they're very limited by how they can sustain their livelihoods. They spend a lot of time fasting and they have strict rules limiting what they wear and they are never even allowed to lie on a mattress. Wow, this sounds um, very medieval. No monkeying around. (laughs) (laughs) They take their name from the place name Val de Choux in Burgundy where their first monastery was established. Now this place name translates to the Valley of the Cabbages. No! Oh, they're the Cabbage Monks of Bewley? Yes! I don't know, I love this name. I feel like it very much aligns with their aesthetic lifestyle. Well, there's not that many people around, so it's most likely just a few scattered farmsteads amongst very fertile fields, which are perfect for growing cabbages. Woo! It's cabbage time, Jenny. <laughs> My cabbages bring all the monks to the yard and they're like... I'm more holier than thou. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. I'm holier than thou. I can teach you. But I have to plough. <laughs> <laughs> well, the cabbage monks were delighted with where they landed and they set to work. After constructing some basic accommodation they began laying the foundations for the priory. On a warm spring morning, while most of the monks toiled away on the stonework, one monk had other plans for the day. There was one thing that this monk enjoyed even more than cabbages, Annie, and that is planting trees. On his long journey north, while seeking rest under a grand tree, He found himself admiring the beauty of the delicate blossoms above him as they danced in the wind. As he looked closer, he saw small clusters of seeds clinging to the branches. 
as the rest of his brothers began walking north once more, he gently plucked some seeds from this tree, popped them in his monastic fanny pack, and continued on north. This monk definitely didn't have a monastic fanny pack. All right, then, he had a Disney one. <laughs> I'm taking away your creative license, Jenny. Good luck, it's already been suspended. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you had points on it. <laughs> You're no longer driving this creative vehicle, Jenny. <laughs> Whether I'm driving or not, a handful of these seeds made it to Bewley with the monk. And on this clear spring morning, our monk sneaks a little ways away from the construction and digs a hole. He takes one of the seeds from his little monastic fanny pack and he drops it into the hole while saying a prayer and then gently covers it up. He hopes that it will be born from beneath the ground and climb forevermore towards the great open sky above, giving shade and shelter to any weary traveller who may pass underneath it. This is the likely scenario. The elm tree is referred to in the early deed documents from the establishment of the priory. A monk could have planted it, or it may have naturally seeded a few years earlier. Unfortunately, we'll never know. But what we do know is that by the late 17th century, there was an entire avenue of mature elm trees stretching from the priory down into the village square. The Bewley elm, the big one that we love, is the one that's closest to the priory and is the last survivor of this avenue. We don't know when the rest of this avenue of trees was planted, but for a time, the Bewley Elm was one of many, one of a family, a tree amongst friends. Oh, I love that it had pals. One of my favourite areas of forest research is the mycorrhizal fungal networks between trees, especially trees of the same species in a particular area. The roots of these elms would have been connected to each other via fungal networks in the soil. So wait, the fungal network is like the WhatsApp group of the trees? It's called the Wood Wide Web. <laughs> <laughs> but this Wood Wide Web connected these trees. And if one was struggling, then the others could send it sugars and nutrients through this network. They could warn each other of dangers. And if one was dying it could pass the last of its energy onto the trees in its network. While the Bewley Elm is the last one standing, it makes me happy to know that it did have a little community at one point. It's also possible that on his journey north, our wee monk spotted some of the old standing stones and druids' houses, as they called the Iron Age cairns, that are scattered throughout the landscape. This monk would have known that there are still echoes of pre-Christian beliefs in the areas. And, rather than try to expel these with an iron fist, perhaps he wondered if planting some special trees would help to give the locals an extra sense of the sacred space at Bewley Priory. Well, this is interesting, Annie, because elms are traditionally associated with death and the underworld and their wood has long been favoured for coffin-making. They are thought to stand at the entrance to the underworld, 
the last living thing the dead pass before crossing into the other realm. They are the final goodbye and a reminder of those lucky enough to still be living of the closeness of death. Yew trees are often planted in church graveyards and cemeteries as they signify long life and rebirth. Perhaps our monk was aware of the various beliefs surrounding the elm trees and planted this witch elm purposefully in what he knew would become a place of death, burial, ceremony and eternal rest. Or perhaps he just really wanted to take up shinty but he didn't have a stick. Whatever the motives behind the planting, the Bewley Elm came to be. And so too did the Priory. When completed, the Priory was centred on the Abbey, an impressive house of worship. It homed up to 20 monks who supported themselves through farming, fishing and cultivating an orchard. For hundreds of years, life carried on in the Priory. A wee community grows around Bewley and the monks are living their best cabbagey lives. No need to be kale-full when you've got so much kale. Cabbage patch monks. <laughs> That's the best I can do. <laughs> I was thinking of a way to best convey just how long this tree lived for. And so I googled how many generations of people live in 800 years. And Google told me that it is 40 generations. So when this elm seed was planted, dear listeners, your great, 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 grandparents were cutting about some medieval village and falling in love. How beautiful. And now, one trillion ancestors later, here you are. This tree has witnessed the world's population balloon from less than 500 million to 7.9 billion people. That is a lot of the birds and the bees. I think a really interesting way to visualise this is to look at all the monarchs that have ruled Scotland and then the British Isles during this tree's lifetime. And the best way I know how to do that, Jenny, is in rhyming couplets. Oh, Annie. <laughs> I would really rather this idea you discarded, but I can see in your eyes that you are about to get started. King Alexander II signed the Treaty of York, served England peace upon a plate with a knife and fork yum yum. Margaret Maid of Norway comes next, tragically just a wee lass at the time of her death. Had a life full of worry and woe, she barely even made it to Scotland's shore. John Balliol had little to bring, so England used him as a puppet king. The Scottish nobles cut short that dance, and they signed the old allegiance with France. Annie, wait, Annie, there are loads of monarchs. I, I don't really know if our listeners are that bothered. Robert the Bruce gave no <laughs> excuse, picked up his sword, no need for a truce. 
fought a guerrilla war against the English did well in the War of Independence. Freedom! You've quickly changed your opinion. You can see rhyming couplets rule the dominion. I can see which way this rhyme is going, uh, so I may as well allow it to keep flowing. <laughs> David II played hide and seek, a king on the run so his throne he could keep. His nephew Robert II was then crowned on the House of Stuart. He did found. Robert III wasn't massively blessed. He only controlled a wee bit of land in the west. James I closed up the sewer, but unfortunately, this sealed his future. He wanted to stop his tennis balls from falling, but this blocked his exit when assassination came calling. Ring, ring. Hey, I'm assassination. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, stop. I have no idea what that one means. Could you just take a break to explain it to me, please? All right, if you'd listen to the Linlithgow episode, James... (laughs) James I closed up the sewer Uh so that his tennis balls wouldn't fall down, but when assassins came, he tried to escape via a sewer network and his exit was blocked because he'd blocked the sewer. Okay, got you, thank you. Back to Bewley in 1416, where Francis Lovett was the boss. He gave the priory plenty of dosh to build the chapel of the Holy Cross. James II was better than none. He was killed by his own exploding cannon. James III, as a king, was weak. To the managers, his nobles did want to speak. James IV filled dockyards with many warships. He loved the printing press. He kissed it on the lips. But at this time, Bewley Priory did feel the nips after being plundered for wealth in 1506. James V is father of Mary, Queen of Scots, who contended with several evil plots. She saw the Bewley elm and her love was sparked. Mary, Queen of Scots, a martyr in our hearts. By now our tree is 350, and I think that's buttered turnip nifty. (laughs) Now's when the Priory falls to ruin. But give our elm a box, because it's still booming. You mean blooming? No, no, booming. This is a funky elm. Oh, like a boombox. You might think it's the best, or think it's the worst. But the Union of Crowns is done by James VI and I. Now England and Scotland are awkwardly aligned, and Charles I is here just in time. In time to be beheaded by a gang of his foes, they dip their hankies in his blood as a memento. Oliver Cromwell takes charge with an iron fist, building forts anywhere that tries to resist. His troops come to Bewley, but not to sightsee. They built a citadel from the stone of the Priory. Charles II swoops in, thinks the citadel is grim. On the request of Highland chiefs, he puts it in the bin. (laughs) James VII and II had a lot of style, but his rule ended in his own exile. Ring the bell because it's time for a fight. Now's the rise of the Jacobites. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) (laughs) King William and Queen Mary, their reign was a little scary. Cousins in a marriage bargain like they're written by George R.R. Martin. (laughs) Queen Anne's next, but her health wasn't great. With her death, the House of Stuart meets its fate. 
King George I and his cousin wed. Here's George II bleeding the Highlands red. George III was Britain's longest reigning son, and you can watch him in Bridgerton. William IV is at the door, and then Victoria, who's well adored. Unless you look at empire with a critical eye and see that the British are the bad guys. Edward VII encouraged peacemaking. George V saw Europe quaking. Elizabeth II then comes around. You can see her life in the hit show The Crown. These kings and queens did rule the realm, but all were outlived by the Bewley Elm. Charles III takes the throne aged 73, and so does Di, our favourite tree. And so the Bewley Elm does fall, but it was the greatest monarch of them all. The only factually inaccurate bit is technically the Bewley Elm isn't a monarch. But from knowing this tree, we've been truly honoured. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, Annie, when you said you were going to write a poem about the kings and the queens, I, I didn't expect this masterpiece. Um, but now you've, you've covered the entire history of this tree, and I'm like, we've got to get you on horrible histories. <laughs> <laughs> By the 1900s, Bewley Priory had long been in ruins, and in 1909, it was transferred to the care of the state. But the village itself was thriving, and at the centre of it stood the revered ancient witch elm. It is one year after this, in 1910, that folk on mainland Europe started seeing seemingly healthy elm trees unexpectedly die, the issue persisted, and by 1920, a group of Dutch pathologists were studying the ill trees, trying to deduce what was killing them, and they were successful. You see, there is a beetle called the elm bark beetle that has evolved alongside elm trees. These little black and burgundy critters burrow through the bark of a dying or diseased elm and breed. The new baby beetles then fly out to healthy elm trees where they burrow through the bark and feed off the tree's internal water and sugar channels. Oh, evil little parasites. Well, kind of, but providing food and protection for other organisms is a normal part of any tree's life. And usually these organisms don't damage the tree much or at all, else they'd be killing their own home. And this is the same for the elm bark beetle. They aren't the culprit of the elm's deaths but they are a big part of it. See, the beetles are the perfect vessels for the fungus Ophiostoma nova ulmi, and it's this fungus that the Dutch pathologists find is causing the elm blight. When the beetles burrow into healthy elm bark to feed, they transfer this fungus to the tree's vessels, which are vital for transporting water and nutrients throughout the tree. Once inside, the fungus spreads, and as it does so, it releases toxins which over time block the vessels vital to the tree's life, gradually killing it. And then, a little elm bark beetle sees a dying elm tree and thinks, ah, oh, what a perfect spot to make some little elm bark beetle babies. But when the babies are ready to go and feed on healthy elm trees, they then take with them 
the lethal bacteria, which will kill the very tree that feeds them. What little assassins! They are unwitting assassins. Now, the Dutch pathologist named this Dutch elm disease, and while it has Dutch in the title, it is actually thought to have originated in Asia. It took another seven years before the first cases were seen in the UK. However, the strain seemed to be a mild one, and it didn't cause too much damage or spread too far. Phew. Well, hold that phew, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Because unfortunately, in 1967, a logging ship from Canada docked on English shores, and from it disembarked a far more virulent strain of Dutch elm disease. And sadly, the elm population was not as lucky as it had previously been. From this strain, there was no escape. The elms native to the UK have no natural resistance against this version of the fungus, and within 10 years, it had reached Scotland. By 1990, not even 25 years later, very few mature elms were left in Britain or much of continental Europe. The fungus has killed millions of elms in the UK, and it has also devastated elm populations in North America, Europe and Australia. Over the last few decades, the disease has continued its way up north, But there was hope, as its spread was slowing due to the cooler climate and lower density of elm trees up north. However, while its spread did slow, it didn't stop. And a few years ago, what the locals of Bewley had been fearing for decades was finally confirmed. The Bewley elm had Dutch elm disease. Oh no! Yeah, and from there it progressed relatively quickly. Year on year, it sprouted fewer and fewer new shoots as it struggled to transport the necessary nutrients from its roots to its branches and vice versa. By 2021, just 5% of the tree was living material and by 2022, it was effectively dead. For the last few years, it has stood as a leafless sentinel over the village, a gravestone amongst the graveyard. But... A few days ago, at the start of 2023, the Bewley Elm, after 800 years of standing tall in the heart of this wee village, finally fell. This winter has seen many deep, hard frosts. With each frost, any water in the cantankerous trunk froze and expanded. Each expansion damaged and cracked the wood, Imagine thousands of tiny fissures forming within the wood with every freeze. Eventually, the hollowed trunk was so weakened that it could no longer support the twisting branches above. It gave way and the Bewley Witch Elm fell. As we record this, the Bewley Elm currently lies uprooted among the gravestones and the community is in mourning of the loss of this spectacular tree. Historic Environment Scotland, who look after the site, have said that they are looking into ways to spread the wood among the local community and arts groups. Its trunk may be hollow, but it's also swollen with huge knotted burrs, and these have a wondrous grain and are highly sought after for woodworking. So hopefully, 
Something beautiful and lasting will be created from these bulbous burrs of the Bewley Witch Elm. And perhaps more wonderfully, some young saplings of the Witch Elm have been found in the Priory grounds. They have been removed to be protected from the Dutch elm disease, which is great, but they are being nurtured by Historic Environment Scotland's landscape architects, and they will be replanted in the Priory when it is safe to do so. Isn't that just marvellous? There's going to be Elm again in the Priory. Truly wonderful after Elmageddon. <laughs> <laughs> it fills me with such joyous hope for the future. These young elms will one day join the Bewley Elms' remaining companion, a towering ancient sycamore. While not as old as the elm, this is a massive tree and has been growing just 20 feet away from the elm for centuries. It is happy, healthy and home to many, many jackdaws. Long live the Bewley Sycamore. Woo! And as for Dutch elm disease, universities across the world have been studying the fungus and its spread for decades and are developing disease-resistant trees. It's hoped that these trees will eventually repopulate the UK and other affected areas with a thriving, healthy elm population. The Bewley Elm has lived an absolutely incredible life, and it has seen so many lives around it. From the people who live in Bewley or visit the village, from the little cabbages that grew in the shadows of the Priory, to Mary Queen of Scots leaning out of a carriage window. Oh, c'est beau <laughs> All the rain that this tree has withstood, every storm that has raged around it, the coldest of winters, of the little ice age, to the warming decades since the Industrial Revolution. As we know from rhyming couplets, this tree has witnessed the rise and fall of many kings and queens and now, hopefully, the community can do something interesting with the wood it has given us. So this tree continues to live on in our little hearts. It will be sorely missed and dearly remembered. Isabel McLeish is a local artist, and she has been doing some really cool work around the Witch Elm in the last year or so. All of the stories and creative work that have been generated through her project will be available soon, so keep an eye on her website to see the tree live on in art. And if you're doing the North Coast 500, Bewley is a must-see spot and we cannot recommend the downright gabbler enough. It has amazing food paired with the history of Scotland. So they do wonderful storytelling in between courses and it is an absolute thrilling ride. And also a great little place to stay as well because they've got some gorgeous rooms. Thank you so much for listening to our wee podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to help support us as we research, write, record, edit and release this show, then you can head over to our Patreon. When you sign up, you'll not only be helping two independent creators in the Highlands of Scotland continue to do what they love, but you'll also gain access to loads more Scottish content. We're also on all of the social medias, so if you give us a follow there, it makes us look more important than we are. <laughs> or makes us feel more important. 
And there's nothing we love more than a wee five-star rating and review on wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much to all of you who already support us and to our newest patrons, Anna, Sophie, Dana, Frank and Julie. I like to think of you all as happy little red squirrels (laughs) on the Stories of Scotland tree. I was recently watching with joy as I walked my mother's dog some red squirrels playing in a graveyard and they were such joyous little chunky (laughs) playful (laughs) beings they were i think searching for a patch of nuts that they had buried so dear patrons if any of you have buried your nuts i hope that you managed to find them (laughs) without any (laughs) issues We eat all of the happy red squirrel food, which is probably acorn-based cookies. or Don't forget cabbages. Gotta steal some cabbages. We nab some lovely kale from the monks growing it in the priory, and we roast it with a wee bit of olive oil to make nice crispy kale, because we're those kind of squirrels. (laughs) (laughs) We are red squirrels oh so fancy playing around the trees so dandy eating kale roasted in olive oil it makes our squirrel bellies all nice and full our tails are so big and fluffy too we'll hop around and do squirrel grooves we love nibbling our squirrel snacks and we eat squirrel cheese and mac We'll run up the trees and then back down. We'll collect our nuts without a sound. We feel like we've been squirrel spoiled because we eat kale in olive oil. It might seem quite squirrel risky, but we all like our kale nice and crispy. We've got all the frills and ruffles. We'll shave on a little truffle. (laughs) So sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Okay. Until next time. Slanjava. <laughs> Those gentrifying squirrels. <laughs> Our monks are part of a Catholic order, the Valiscolians. <laughs> the Valiscalians. <laughs> What are you laughing Sorry. at? I'm just laughing at you going, the Valley Scallions. <laughs> right in the middle. You nailed it, then went really Scottish and then nailed it again. <laughs> Val de Chaux in Burgundy. Choux. Val de Choux. Choux. Mon Petit Choux. Yep. It's the Cabbage Patch Monks of Bewley. Ding. The Cabbage Patch Munch of Bewley. Wait, the Cabbage Patch Munch? <laughs> no, the Cabbage Patch Monks munching cabbage in the Cabbage Patch. Munch, munch, beautifully. <laughs> great, 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 great. Grandparents were cutting about some medieval village and falling in love. How beautiful. We're pretty fine. We're pretty fine. <laughs> I take a trip to the year 1200. Your ancestors are harvesting cabbage. Everyone had <laughs> monastic baggage filled with seeds. Oh, yabbage. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I'm in that mood today. It's the couplets. I know the couplets are coming. We're having we're having a musical podcast. It's a sing along. We've just got a lot of bloopers today, I think. Okay. 
Ophiostoma nova ulmi. Well done for pronunciation on, on that as well. I, I nailed it, didn't I? Ophiostoma nova ulmi. Mega impressed. Mega impressed. <laughs> 